Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 358. It's titled, Should You Stop Investing in China? Earlier this year, in episode 328, an episode titled, Are You Underweight Chinese Stocks? The Pros and Cons of Investing in China. I shared a statistic that China made up about 17% of the world's economy as measured by gross domestic product, but only about 5% of the global stock market as measured by the MSCI All-Country World Index. We can contrast that with the U.S. Its economy comprises about 22% of the global economy, but over 57% of the global stock market. Since that episode, those differences have gotten wider. Because U.S. stock market is up double digits year to date, whereas the MSCI China All Shares Index, which includes their shares listed in Hong Kong, it includes domestic shares, the A shares, the B shares, shares that are listed overseas, that index is down 8% year to date. And the index of China's largest companies, the China 50, has lost 17% year to date. The A shares that trade on the local Chinese stock market on the mainland have gained 2.7% year to date. In that episode, I listed out some of my reservations about investing in China. The most significant one was political issues. There were trade wars and a renewed regulatory push by Chinese officials to reduce the economic influence of some of the large technology companies. In November of last year, Chinese officials shut down the initial public offering of Jack Ma's Ant Group. That group controls Alipay, one of the largest mobile payment apps in China. Just yesterday, the Financial Times reported that China wants to break up Alipay. That app has over a billion users, and it wants the company to create a separate app for its loan business that's incorporated into Alipay. The lending businesses now need to have an independent app, and the Chinese government's requiring Ant to turn over user data that helps it decide whether to offer somebody credit or not, and to form a joint venture partly state-owned. As you can expect, with that kind of pressure, shares of Alibaba, which is affiliated with the Ant Group, dropped sharply yesterday. Last week, shares in Tencent, one of the largest tech companies in China, and NetEase fell sharply after Chinese authorities told the groups to, quote, break from the solitary focus of pursuing profit. Both of those companies are leaders in the online gaming space, and the Chinese regulars have put restrictions on the ability of those under 18 to participate in online gaming. Kathy Wood, who is CEO of the ETF family ARK Invest, spoke at an institutional investment conference last week and said they had dramatically cut back their exposure to Chinese companies. She said that Chinese authorities are focusing on social issues and social engineering at the expense of capital markets and that anything deemed by Beijing as too profitable was at risk of being torpedoed. ARC continues to have some exposure to China, particularly companies that they describe as courting the government 
with common prosperity. It's fine for any government to enact regulations, to decide that some companies have become too powerful. There's certainly been pushback against some of the larger tech companies here in the U.S. But the level of regulatory changes in the past few months in China have been absolutely astounding. There have been restrictions on foreign initial public offerings, the anti-monopoly investigations against tech firms. There's been restrictions on the use of algorithms, strict new data privacy laws. There have been new rules and conditions for gig workers. The private tutoring sector has been made nonprofit, and I'll discuss that momentarily. Wealthy individuals and their firms have been urged to step up charitable contributions. I've mentioned the restrictions on online gaming, and there's been restrictions targeting online celebrity fan clubs. TV companies have been told to blacklist actors that they deem as having incorrect views. And the TV companies have been told to promote revolutionary culture. And school children have started taking weekly classes on what is known as Xi Jinping thought. That's a lot going on. Not necessarily all bad if you're a consumer in China, but not necessarily great if you're a publicly traded company. One of the biggest changes happened on July 24th. Like many countries, Chinese students have an entrance exam that they need to take in order to qualify at the top-tier universities. 11 million students took that exam in 2020. There's a lot of pressure on those kids and the parents for those exams because they're so meaningful. And so the parents sign their children up for tutoring classes, private tutoring, much of which is online. There's been big tech companies that have backed these online tutoring companies through their venture capital arms. Tens of billions of dollars have been invested in the tutoring industry. There are three publicly traded companies education companies that operate in China that trade on the New York Stock Exchange. Then out of the blue, on July 24th, 2021, China announced that private tutoring companies had to go nonprofit, and they banned them from going public or raising foreign capital. Tao Education Group, New Oriental Education and Tech Group, and others that trade on the New York Stock Exchange lost 90% of their value within days because their business model is shot. And those companies, the foreign entity that's registered outside of China, have no legal means to fight this because they used a structure known as a variable interest entity. This structure allowed Chinese companies to raise foreign capital, but to do it in a way to skirt the rules. There are restrictions in China on foreign ownership in certain sectors, including the technology sector. And the way that these companies have been structured, including Alibaba, is they register an entity offshore, such as the Cayman Islands. They raise funds in the U.S. They list their shares on the New York Stock Exchange, like those two educational companies. But the actual operations are based in China, and the intellectual property is based in China, and that IP and operations are owned by individuals in China. 
They're not owned by the offshore entity. There's just a contractual agreement to pass through revenue and earnings. But just an agreement. There's no legal agreement. It's just a contractual agreement that has no legal standing in China. And so in the case of these online tutoring companies that were structured as VIEs, basically don't really have any way to fight what China has decided regarding going nonprofit. Most of the big Chinese tech companies that have raised capital overseas use this VIE structure. Accounting regulators, FASB, has said it's okay to consolidate the financial agreements so it looks like one entity, but it really isn't. It's just individuals that own the intellectual property and the operations within China, not the company registered outside of China. These VIE structures have been around since the early 2000s. The Chinese stock market isn't really that old. It was closed from the early 1950s until 1990. Even in the year 2000, 10 years after the stock market had reopened, mainly to just state-owned enterprises that needed to raise capital from investors, only about 1% in the year 2000s of companies listed on China's stock exchange were private companies, non-state-owned companies. In 2006, 98% of Chinese companies couldn't access bank loans. So there was a desire to raise capital in order to expand in China. And that's when they started to use this VIE structure. Chinese regulators told those online tutoring companies they can no longer use the VIE structure. Now, it's unclear whether China will go after other sectors that have used the VIE structure to raise capital, but it, it certainly puts some downward pressure on Chinese stocks. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Some other risk in China that I didn't talk about in that earlier episode is debt burdens. Private non-financial sector debt in China is 222% of GDP. This is mostly private companies. That compares to the U.S. private non-financial debt is only 164%. Chinese companies are way more indebted than U.S. companies. This year, one of the the largest debtors in China, Harong, was a company set up by China to purchase bank loans that have gone sour. Been around since 1999, but it's now become a conglomerate. At the end of August, it reported liabilities of $238 billion, a $16 billion loss. Its leverage ratio was 1,333 times. It was about to fail. Apparently, Huarong was buying 30 to 40% of the banking system's non-performing loans, and it was about to collapse. And a collapse like that could have led to contagion and certainly deeper losses for the stock market. Could have destabilized the entire banking system. I remember many years ago, I met with a hedge fund in the U.S. that invested heavily in China. And he emphasized that the Chinese banks are going to be okay because the banks are owned by China, by the government, or they're heavily influenced by them. Then the Chinese government will do everything they can to contain any type of banking contagion. In this case, Harong will be rescued by other state-owned companies. 
because it was determined it was too big to fail. Another highly indebted company, one of the top four indebted companies in China, is Evergrande. It's the largest property developer. It has property projects in over 280 cities, $304 billion in debt. It has been able to keep its profits up by selling subsidiaries. Last year, August 2020, China introduced what is known as the three red line limits, with the goal to reduce some of the speculation in the real estate development market. Companies like Evergrande had to reduce their borrowings, and they have. Evergrande had over 800 billion renminbi of debt back in June 2020. As of June 2021, it had reduced its debt balance to under 600 billion renminbi, but it was still struggling to service that debt. Evergrande has $21 billion of foreign currency debts, which are now at risk of default. Now, about 45% of Evergrande's debt is backed by collateral, so that collateral could be sold to pay it down. But there is a real risk that Evergrande could fail, again, leading to some type of contagion. And much of that debt were housing deposits by individuals, by families, and it's at risk. We don't know what the government's going to do. Presumably, they will step in and not allow Evergrande to default on those housing deposits by individuals. The Economist reports that housing in China is very different. We talked about a housing crash last week. Not only is housing shelter in China, but it's also the biggest chunk of household debt, about 70%. It's by far the largest asset that Chinese households have. It is used as collateral. It's where they save. It's where they speculate. And it consists of about three quarters of household wealth. And those housing deposits are an aspect of that. It doesn't sound like policymakers would let Evergrande default on that aspect, but we don't know. There will probably be some type of restructuring. That's one of the biggest challenges with investing in China. It's opaque. We don't really know. You can't even really trust the GDP numbers. One of the institutional research services I subscribe to, Capital Economics, has what is known as a China proxy. So they basically grab a lot of different data sources to estimate what GDP growth will be. They believe the Chinese economy, like the U.S., will grow over 6% in the next year. But China's economic growth is slowing. China was one of the first countries to overcome COVID. Everybody else was in lockdown buying things that were made in China. So China's economy boomed, the stock market recovered. China's population growth is slowing and has been. And so economic growth is expected to be over 4% in 2022, about a percentage points higher than, than the U.S. And in 2023, Capital economics expects China's GDP to to grow around 3.5%, again, a percentage point higher than the U.S. So despite these challenges that we're seeing, the regulatory crackdown, the ideological crackdown, China is a massive country. Its economy continues to grow, and the Communist Party has every incentive to make sure it continues growing. At the same time, if we look at valuations of Chinese stocks, they're cheaper 
than the U.S. Now, they're not inexpensive. Given the sell-off year to date, the Chinese stock market is about average. If we look at the trailing price-to-earnings ratio in China, it's 15.5 compared to 26.1 for the U.S. The forward price-to-earnings ratio, so using earnings looking out over the next year, is 13.6 in China compared to its long-term average of 12.2, so more expensive. But compared to the U.S., the U.S.'s forward P.E. is 21.8. If we look at cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratios, so in this case, we're looking at average earnings over the past decade, China's at 15.1, slightly below its long-term average going back to 2006 of 16.4. If we contrast that with the U.S., Its cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratio is 37.3, the second highest it's been all time. The only time it's been higher than that was back during the internet bubble of the year 2000. The long-term average going back to 1980 is 21. So here we have a country, China, whose stock market is significantly cheaper than the U.S., whose representation as a percent of the global stock market is only 5%, contributing 17% to global GDP. We have the U.S. stock market with a cyclically adjusted P.E. of 37, well above average, and making up about 21 to 22% of global GDP, but 57% of the global stock market. That's an investing conundrum for us because... We don't really know what's going on with China. We can get some sense, but while the market there is not cheap, it's certainly less expensive than the U.S., and its economic growth is expected to be higher. Most of us will have some exposure to China. If you have exposure, for example, to the Vanguard Total Stock Market ETF, VT, it has about a 4% weight in China. Not very much, but some of its largest holdings in the top 10 are Alibaba and Tencent, which I mentioned earlier in this episode. Now, maybe you have an allocation to an emerging markets ETF. The Vanguard FTSE Emerging Market ETF, VWO, has 37% in China. So if you're just in a passive emerging markets ETF, you're taking a larger bet on the Chinese stock market. What I have chosen to do in my portfolio and in the model portfolio examples on Money for the Rest of Us Plus is to have an overweight in emerging markets, but an underweight in China. For example, my personal stock portfolio allocation to China is 4%, even though my overall equity allocation to emerging markets is 23%. Over half of that allocation is in India. We discussed the investment case for India back in episode 249. This is a very long-term investment for me. I'm looking at a decade or two. But I do believe that India has much better longer-term prospects than China. One of the holdings that I own in India, and I mentioned that in episode 249, is the Wasatch Emerging India Investor Fund. It's an actively managed mutual fund, and I own it because the Indian stock market is not cheap. I wanted an asset management firm, a mutual fund, that could select individual stocks in India where the company was expected to do better than consensus and justify the higher prices. 
Another way to get exposure, broad-based exposure to emerging markets is a holding that we added to the Money for the Rest of Us Plus model portfolios this year, the Wisdom Tree Emerging Markets High Dividend ETF. DEM is the ticker. It has only about 20% in China, so about half the weighting than the Vanguard FTSE Emerging Markets ETF. So that's a way to get exposure to emerging markets to higher dividend-paying stocks without taking a big bet on China. We don't know how this is going to turn out with China. I continue my allocation. It's small. And for most of us, we can continue to maintain a smaller allocation to China. I would wait until there's more clarity and at least the Chinese stock market gets much, much cheaper than it is today. But given how aggressive Chinese regulators have been this year, we should probably put increasing exposure to China on pause just to see how things play out. That's our discussion on China. Thanks for listening to episode 358. I'd like to help you become a better investor. Certainly the free podcast helps with that. But have you subscribed to my email newsletter? It's where I share an essay on money investing in the economy each week to that list of thousands of email subscribers. I put a great deal of thought and time into that newsletter, and I would love you to be able to read it and learn from it. You can sign up for the Insider's Guide newsletter at moneyfortherestofus.com. Another way I would love to help you become a better investor is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is the premier investment education platform that's been operating for almost seven years now. Plus Membership gives members the tools and resources they need to manage their investment portfolios. Not only can you tap into my more than two decades of investment experience, look at my portfolio trades, but my research is backed by top-tier institutional research partners such as Ned Davis Research, Capital Economics, MSCI, Refinitiv Datastream. I curate the most important content and lessons to help you make better portfolio decisions. You also access a community of over a thousand members to get their insights. Money for the Rest of Us Plus is a bargain compared to a college credit or subscribing to institutional research services that cost tens of thousands of dollars per year or even hiring a financial advisor. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week. 